Welcome to Grace to All. I'm your host, Paul Gray. You've probably used the word grace, sang Amazing Grace, or said grace at a meal. But did you know that God's grace is way better than we can even imagine, and that you and all people already have an abundant supply of God's unlimited amazing grace? Today, we're going to hear the truth about God's amazing grace to all people. So, sit back, relax, and prepare to be inspired and awakened to the amazing treasures that you already possess. This is truth that you can handle. Welcome back, everybody, to Grace to All with Paul Gray. And if you were with us last week, you had a delightful time, I know, with my friend Brad Jerzak and I talking. And I, I have to confess, I lied to you. I, I said at the end of that, Brad would be wearing the same hat and doggone if he didn't switch up on me. So uh, <laughs> he's got his miracle hat on. Welcome back, Brad. Thanks for being with us again. Thanks for having me again, Paul. Grateful to be with you. Thank you. Me as well. I wanted to talk to you about something that I haven't done. I've done over 300 episodes of Grace to All with Paul Gray. And a week ago on Thursday night when I was involved with your fellow Canadian and our fellow friend, Mike Sinker, in a conference that he's putting on with some other really great people, I heard you talk for the first time about the First Nations people where you live, and you put on the footer of your emails that you uh, gratefully acknowledge that you live in the traditional and unceded territory of the Stolo people. And what you said about them last week so gripped me that I wanted to talk about it more for myself. I wanted to hear about it more for myself, and in particular, how grace enters in, how grace manifests in a whole situation with a whole people group that has uh, received pretty much anything but grace from us. So talk about that, if you would. Sure. So I need to load it up with caveats to begin with. I am not speaking for the First Nations. We call them First Nations in Canada or the Indigenous peoples. I'm not speaking for them or to them today. I'm speaking as someone who sat at their feet as a student. My connection to them goes back quite a ways. I spent one year training under the mentorship of, of a guy named Charles Littledale in Aboriginal relations, where the goal was to establish relationships with people of various tribes in Canada, where groups or companies like BC Hydro, for example, was going to be crossing through their land. And the Supreme Court requires that we do sufficient consultation and compensation anytime any group does that kind mm. of thing, infringes on land mm. that they have a claim on. And so after a year of that, we discovered that the door for that to me wasn't going to open just in terms of the, mm. the amount and type of business Charles was doing. He's just an epic mentor though. And, and so he would take me to these tribal meetings with, with the chief or the band councils. And I got to see firsthand how they had experienced colonization as real tragic and traumatic stuff, not just from the past, which is a very subtle form actually of racism. When we talk about them in the past tense, as if they are not currently alive and suffering the effects of what's been done in the past. And I didn't even know that. So that was one connection I had was that year of training with them. 
Another connection is that now my oldest son has married an Indigenous woman. She's from the Cree tribe. And she's experienced the disenfranchisement, the dispossession of her culture because her mom grew up outside of the reservation and lost her language, lost her culture. And now my daughter-in-law is trying to recover that. And I'm really grateful to say that, you know, now I have a grandson with Indigenous blood flowing through his veins. So it matters to me a lot. And there's other connections that I have. I've had the profound experience of being in some healing circles. And again, it's a a sacred experience because you hear their pain and you can't fix it. And in fact, you need to just shut up because a lot of even the language that for you and I would seem very positive to them, it's got a backstory of abuse by European Christian institutions who were the agents of some of their torment. So for example, in Canada and the United States, we handled the indigenous peoples differently. In the United States, one of the big elements was forced migrations where you purposefully uprooted people groups, which Simone Weil, the great philosopher and mystic says, is the most violent thing you can do to a person. In Canada, we did it differently, just as bad, just as bad. I I can't measure these things, but I know that the idea, and by the way, that progressives are pretty high on themselves about how inclusive they are and so on. The reality is that it was progressives that felt that the First Nations people were backwards and primitive and superstitious, and they needed to expunge that from their worldviews. That's progressives, which they brought that from Europe. A deeper tragedy in that even is that then Christians became their agents. So you had anti-religious people hiring on religious people to quote, and this is in the government documents, kill the Indian in the Indian. You know, this is the idea. What we need to do is assimilate them. So the way they did it is they abducted all their children and put them into what they call residential schools. Now, sometimes the First Nations people would do this voluntarily because it's, oh, my children will be able to read and write. They'll be educated in European ways so they can engage and compete and participate. Others, it was just a kidnapping. So Catholics, Anglicans, Methodists, they would contract these schools and then they would cut the children's hair, take away anything that looked like First Nations culture and their clothing style, all of that. They would force them to kneel and pray to a God they didn't know. They would punish them for talking their own language. And these punishments just became magnified into beatings and deaths by the thousand and a horrendous range of sexual abuse over many, many decades. So just an excruciating story from the First Nations point of view. And so then if we use a word like grace, if they recognize grace as a Christian word, they associate it with their abuse. If we use a word like forgive, that's the F word to them, because forgive was used to silence them and to cover up the things that happened to them. If we use a word even like reconciliation, and there is a First Nations Truth and Reconciliation Commission patterned after South Africa and Bishop Desmond Tutu, but a lot of the First Nations people will say, well, hang on a second. 
reconciliation is this is just another thing you're doing to us so that you will feel better. This is a way to massage your own guilt. So of course we don't want to engage in grace and forgiveness and reconciliation. We heard all about that from the very people who are raping our children. And this came up very recently again, because now part of truth is that they're uncovering mass graves of children, unmarked graves of children who died in these residential schools and their parents were never informed. A side note to that, forcing them to be in petri dishes of tuberculosis. There was genocide by tuberculosis too. So I think now we can formally call it a strategic genocide, a cultural genocide for sure. But also now we're dealing with who knows how many children had their lives snuffed out by Christians. Now there's an in-house problem within the First Nations community because some of those would completely reject any form of faith that is associated with European colonizers, right? Others have discovered a Jesus who completely bypassed the Europeans. They connect with the Middle Eastern Jesus who was experienced the same abuse they had. Mm-hmm. And so within the First Nations community, and you'll see this also in the Black community in America, there are those who are like, quite condemning of any faith. They want to say, hey, learn your history. (laughs) Why would you follow Jesus? And there's others that are like, no, this is part of my First Nations culture, the discovery that the God, the creator God who I worshipped before the Europeans arrived, became flesh in Palestine. And I can relate to that, you know. Uh So it's a huge task just trying to say, is there ways that we can help with not just taking over again? Can we sit in silence with you and bear this burden you have experienced? And how can we talk about forgiveness and reconciliation? Maybe we can't, but we can encourage you to. So in the healing circles, they will begin to share with each other how they've experienced liberation when they discovered forgiveness. I can't tell them to do that. But the ones who've been freed up and redeemed can tell each other. And they can duke it out, and I can just be there and listen respectfully. I've been so uh, wanting to know what possibly can be done. That sounds like a big part of it. Yeah. For those who are willing, for example, St. Stephen's University is going to participate in a First Nations conference. Again, we've done this before, but we can host it as in we'll provide the money and the space, but we can't run it. You know, we can make space for them as facilitators. We're going to be also saying, okay, if on the redemption front, it really needs to be First Nations people. And by the way, we have a a First Nations Archbishop of Canada right now. And we've had now attorney generals and so on who, so that's good. My role might be more to educate people like you and me, you know. So we're starting an MA in peace and justice that will have an indigenous reconciliation kind of facet to it. But again, we can't completely run that. But to to the degree that we are, the message is also to our white students in how to become more sensitive and to face into our complicity and to own the ways in which Christian faith was co-opted by progressive colonialists to wipe out cultures and languages and spirituality. 
Yeah, people can see right through any attempt to control or run it for an agenda other than what you just mentioned. And uh, I think it would take a special group of people, people who were really listening to the real Jesus and what he was all about to be able to humbly do that. As you mentioned, sitting around in a healing circle with them and listening to them. And I, I heard you say on Mike's uh, deal, when the pipe came to you, the talking stick or the talking pipe came to you, you just kissed it and passed it on. What can you say? Yeah. One thing I want to bring to the table today about this is our mistaken assumption that Christ was not present in North America until Christian missionaries came here. Christ is the light of the world. John 1 says that Christ is a light who comes to everyone who enters the world. So that means that there were people among these indigenous tribes. Yes, some were wrapped up in forms of religion that were very into perhaps retributive gods who needed to be appeased and all of that stuff. But they also, many of them had a strong sense of God, the creator who had revealed himself as light and love to them. And that they had responded to that before we ever showed up. So what happened then was missionaries like John Wesley came over and he was surprised then thinking initially that he needed to reveal the light of the world to them, but he discovered they already knew and loved and prayed to the light of the world, to the creator with gratitude and thanksgiving in a way that Cornelius already had before he met Peter in the book of Acts. Yeah. So in the book of Acts, God tells Peter that I have seen this man. I've taken note of his almsgiving. I have heard his prayers. I have approved of him like already. (laughs) And that I do that with people of good faith all around the world who live righteous lives and seek me. Yeah. So what John Wesley and what Peter had to ask themselves was, if they already know God, then why tell them about Jesus? And Wesley's conclusion was this. I don't need to convince them that they are heathen pagans who need to renounce their faith and adopt a new religion. What I need to let them know is that the God they already know, that there is a fullness to their inheritance that I can share with them, that there is an assurance in Christ that I can offer them. So fullness of their inheritance and their assurance in Christ. So what does that mean? It means that Peter did preach the gospel to a God-fearing man in a way that that God-fearing man now became a God-loving man, because now he knew the fullness of his inheritance is that he's not just a created being who worships a creator. He is a beloved child of a loving father. And and any doubts that they might've had about their standing before that father can be settled in the message of Jesus. You are forgiven. And that this creator, you can find him not just out there, but in you. So it's more like an added there there's, Oh, you know, God, you've met him. Here's what we discovered through his son, but then not just like putting that on them, but saying, tell us about how this might already also have been revealed to you. 
Yeah, How does it work in your story? And now we become listeners then, right? Instead yeah. of just saying, well, obviously we have a better message. No, not it's not obvious at all. Look how we lived and <laughs> look how they lived. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that, that's fascinating. A, well, it is. I had a, a somewhat similar experience that I've heard a lot of other people had too. I, I have a friend who's blind. He's in jail by his own choice. He goes in for six months at a time, immediately trespasses against businesses downtown that have a do not trespass thing specifically for him. So he gets put back in jail and he likes it there because he's been horribly mistreated by lots of different people outside of jail and he's protected there. But he's attended Bible studies in jail, primarily by ultra right-wing religious zealots. And I'm friends with him. And one time, a few years ago, the jail lets me go in and meet in a private room with him. Don't have to talk through a screen or anything. And I said to him, Robert, I, I want to read to you a little booklet here by Baxter Kruger called The Parable of the Dancing God. So I read that to him. He was rapt attention, you know, tears are coming down his face. And at the end, he said, I knew it. He said, I just knew it. I knew God wasn't like I'd been told. I just knew it in my heart. And I thought, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, he did. He knew it in his heart. And it's not exactly what you were saying, but the First Nations people, many of them knew Jesus in their heart, just not by the same name that we call it. But we can help them see a much fuller, or maybe not much fuller, but at least give them some historical perspective that Jesus from our historical standpoint. Yeah, I suppose at least one thing we could do a little bit like when we talked about Richard Dawkins, they may have rejected the same God that we should be rejecting, right? And to say, the God we know is not the white slave owner from Europe. The God we know is the one who became flesh in occupied territories as a refugee and an internally displaced person. And he was brown, by the way, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> so to sort of distance ourselves from the idol of white Christian nationalism or something like that. Yeah. And the point isn't to get them to a place where they know they're better than me. The point is to cheer them on as they find freedom they've never had before. Yeah. So I don't want to put words in your mouth. I'll give you the opportunity to say this as we get ready to close. This is such a heavy subject. And uh, if we just focus on the atrocities and the continual ramifications of that, it can just take us down the toilet, to use the language where I've grown up. So in knowing the grace and the joy and the unconditional love of Christ, how do you personally reconcile the two? I guess I would say it's like a therapist who hears people's terrible stories all day. How do you go home at night and see your wife eating and your kids and not let those things take you down the toilet all night? Yeah, I need to be on the same healing journey that these folks are on. And it's their testimony of how they've experienced grace then heals me of hearing the atrocities in their story. So one very clear example of that would be Howard Thurman. We just passed Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Howard Thurman was the grandson of a slave. His grandma had been a slave. His book, Jesus and the Disinherited, and his influence were heavy on Martin Luther King Jr. He was a spiritual father to MLK. And when MLK would travel, he would usually have that book with him. Well, in that book, Here's a guy who'd gone through the Jim Crow era, who had experienced the terrors of 
lynchings, the threat of lynching, about 5,000 Black people had been lynched. And this was not privately at night by Klansmen who were secretive. These were events where upwards of 10,000 people would show up. They were advertised in the newspapers and they were sanctioned by local and state authorities as a sort of extra legal system to keep Blacks in their place. If you want to read more details about that, James Cone's book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, describes it. But people like Cone and Howard Thurman come along and they go, that's not the end of the story. Where the story goes from there is that they can say, wait a minute, where is God in this? There he is hanging on a tree again. So they associate the power of the cross with their experience of these lynchings. And out of that, then, instead of just despairing, they so associate it even in their hymnology and in the Black spirituals that they understand that Christ is with them in their suffering, giving them a hope of a new future, right? Now, so where that connects, especially even with your ministry then, is Howard Thurman's grandma recognized that they had been so stripped of dignity and degraded as people, that they'd been deprived of normal, basic human rights. And this was in an ongoing way that the solution is either that fear will enter your bones and you'll be a slave to it, or you could discover your identity. Very simple. You are a child of God. And so, quoting his grandmother, Thurman's grandmother would say, you are not a slave. You are a child of God. You are not a N-word. You are a child of God. You, yourself, individually, not just generally, you specifically, little Howie, are a child of God. And what that did is it stabilized his ego. It created a place of security in his very core where he knew who he was and that not only And he's riffing off the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, that this God isn't just out there in heaven somewhere who has a caring feeling as you suffer. No, your father who is in heaven knows you intimately and he cares about you. If he cares about the sparrows, he cares about you and he's going to take care of you, Howie. Well, what that did is it drove fear right out and he becomes then this fearless activist, but without the fear also, he also loses the hatred. And he's able to love even the perpetrator. And here's some of the genius to be able to see the white nationalists as his brothers. What that does is it begins to corrode the us-them wall, but it also undermines the us-over-them inequities. So no, I'm not inferior to this person who has more power and privilege than me. We're brothers. And that's actually like right in the face of racism, right? And segregation and all of that. So I don't go to bed at night despairing. I go to bed at night with the testimony of those who've undergone the atrocities and met Christ in the darkest place. Because that means I get to meet Christ in my darkest place. And instead of it being a place of despair, he turns hell itself into a garden of hope, you know? So thank you, Howard Thurman, for teaching me that you know, uh, God's black voice. (laughs) And thank you, Brad, for teaching me and all of our listeners that. My gosh, what hope. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Very bold. 
you know, <laughs> and yeah. I can't go tell the underprivileged that I can't tell the victims that they tell me it. And I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful for this time together. Selfishly, I'd love to keep doing this till you lose your voice, but that's not going to happen today. <laughs> but uh, thank, guys, thank you so much for being willing to share the things that you've learned and share your heart as, as you do so graciously with me and many others. And we just really appreciate it. My pleasure. I'm happy to be here with you. We'll see you again sometime. All right. Thank you very much. And thanks, everybody, for watching and being with us for another edition of Grace to All with Paul Gray. See you next time. Thank you for listening to Grace to All. For more about us, how we can serve you, and our special guest, please visit www.gracewithpaulgray.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss an episode and to join our Facebook group, Grace to All, where you'll be inspired and awakened to more truth that you can handle.